morning. Found on page 1606, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. It's important to see the way Luke is bringing this story together with Jesus' calming of the storm. So in order to set that in our minds, I'll begin reading at verse 22. Verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. This is God's word given to us, his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake, so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged him repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, The demons begged Jesus to let them go into them, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. They were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. As we go through the book of Luke, it's important for us to keep in mind why Luke wrote this account of Jesus. The beginning of the gospel, he tells his friend Theophilus in verse 4 of chapter 1 that it is written, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Certainty was what Luke was trying to form in Theophilus, the one who received this letter. 
wanted to, him to be certain about what he had been taught about Jesus. Perhaps at some point in your life you have heard a story and you were questioning whether or not this story was true and you wish there was some way for it to be confirmed. Although in today's world, most things are confirmed as true or false within mere seconds or minutes. But perhaps you felt that before, wanting to know confirmation of something's truth. Luke wrote this gospel so that those who read it might have certainty about the things they have been taught about Jesus. It's also true that Luke is not the only one involved in writing this gospel, is he? There is also a divine author of the gospel of Luke. And as the Holy Spirit guided Luke along in his writing of the gospel, he was providing all of those who would read it with an account of this Jesus who would fulfill all that had been written about him in the Old Testament. We think, for instance, especially today, of what John the Baptist said about Jesus when he quoted the prophet Isaiah saying that through him all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Putting God's salvation on display and certainty, these really are the main purposes of the Gospel of Luke. Today's story is a wonderful example of how both authors, Luke and God himself, are working to achieve the purpose of this book. This passage shows us, even this morning, that indeed we can have certainty about all the things we have been taught about Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that this story teaches us. It teaches us, namely, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And it teaches us that Jesus Christ is the one through whom all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. Indeed, astoundingly in today's passage, not even just human beings, but even unclean animals grazing in a field. So then today, from this passage, I want us to consider these three things. To be certain that Jesus is Lord. To be certain that Jesus is Lord. Secondly, to be grateful that Jesus is Lord. And finally, to live like he is Lord. Be certain, be grateful, and then live like he is Lord. Jesus and his disciples cross over the Sea of Galilee. It was not a smooth trip. As we found out last week, they were uh, hit with a huge storm. But it does not end in disaster. Jesus' disciples thought that it was going to be the end. Jesus comes and rebukes the winds. He calms the sea with the breath of his mouth. He commands all things and he shows his disciples who he is. It shows them the divine power of Jesus our Lord. He is the divine Son of God. So the boat lands on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee. It's a large body of water, but probably more accurately described as a lake. Jesus is now in a place that is opposite Galilee. I think Luke uses that word for us very intentionally. He is opposite Galilee to show that there is a very definite switch in where he is geographically, at least for this one account. We hear sometimes in life about going to the wrong side of the tracks. It's fascinating how railroad tracks sometimes can be a line of demarcation from a a relatively safe neighborhood to a relatively unsafe one. 
Well, perhaps you could think of Jesus in this account as on the wrong side of the lake, in enemy territory, so to speak. Fascinating part of this story is that you can read it with, uh, through the lens of thinking that the devil and his armies have staked their claim on this land where Jesus goes to, where Jesus ends up. This is land that has been claimed by the enemy. In a sense, it's almost like a colony, and we'll see how that is true. The place where they land is not a very nice place, apparently. A man sees them land there, if we can indeed describe him as a man, for this demon-possessed man is described to us in terms that seem as least human-like as possible. Did you notice that? He's wearing no clothes. He does not live in a home. Clothing, shelter, basic components of human life, this man has neither of these things. There's nothing civil about him. He's wild. He has the strength of many men. He can break chains and shackles. And then finally, he lives among the dead. His living among the dead is symbolic in a couple different ways. It's symbolic because it confirms for us that though this man is living and breathing, we wouldn't really think of him as someone who is truly alive. He lacks all the these signs of having true and genuine human life. In a sense, because of the, the, the possession by this legion of demons, this man has been dehumanized. Dehumanized. His humanity has been almost ripped from him. He does nothing of his own accord. He cannot speak for himself. He doesn't have the normal experiences of life. He is living among the dead because he is as good as dead. His living among the tombs is highly symbolic in that way. His living among the tombs is highly symbolic in another way from the vantage point of Jesus. Because it shows us the willingness of Jesus to confront the powers of death. This man who is so powerful, so strong because of the powers that are living within him. And yet Jesus confronts this man. It shows us, once again, the willingness of Jesus to confront the powers of death. And in order to do that, he must go to this new place across the Sea of Galilee. A region that is uh, claimed by the devil and his armies. Thus Luke is continuing to develop his case of Jesus as the divine Messiah, the Savior of all. This man says when he is asked, he says that the demons within him are legion. That's a Roman military term. And that's really where we see this idea of land that is occupied by the enemy. It's a Roman military term that could have meant up to 6,000 soldiers. A a group of soldiers that could have been sent out to accomplish the will of Caesar. Luke very intentionally uses this military term term in order to show us all of these things and it once again reminds us that Jesus is a savior who is powerful enough to confront the forces of death not just within places that are close to Jerusalem but indeed all over the whole earth reminded as Luke writes the book of Acts later on that he will say that the apostles are to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ to the very ends of the earth. Just because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah does not mean that his salvation will be contained within the borders of Israel. Thus, in verse 28, we see the encounter. 
the encounter of Jesus and this man. But again, this man is just a puppet. Jesus actually speaks to this legion of demons. And what's going on with that? I think one of the, the, the reasons that we see there is a lot of this going on in the Gospels, the Gospel accounts, particularly the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are all these stories of demon possession and Sometimes it it strikes us as odd because perhaps we don't experience all those kinds of things too often today. And I think that one of the best reasons we see a lot of this happening around the time of Jesus is because uh, these are uh, unholy pretenders. Jesus has come and, and truly taken on human flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, fully human and fully divine. And so we see this evil counterfeit of it, of these these demons transgressing boundaries and coming in to possess all of uh, these people. And that is why Jesus oftentimes has encounters with them. And in this encounter, this legion of demons calls Jesus by name. This is a defensive maneuver. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? It's interesting that this is actually a confirmation of something we read in chapter one of Luke, isn't it? If you remember the prayer of Zechariah, he said of Jesus that he will be called the Son of the Most High. So this prophecy is fulfilled for us in a very unlikely character or host of characters in this legion of demons. But that's a defensive maneuver in these somewhat mysterious spiritual encounters. Names had power. Thus, this legion of demons in calling Jesus by name is trying to have him pass by without doing anything that would ruin what they are up to. But Jesus demands that he hear the name of who is inside of this man. So they resort to begging Jesus. And they have already been trying to beg Jesus earlier on in the passage. They beg Jesus that they might not go into the abyss The abyss is a word that means really the realm of the dead. People thought of the abyss, the realm of the dead, as a dark and watery and chaotic place like uh, the deep seas. It's the place where demons will be sent either for temporary holding or for their eternal punishment. That is why uh, Legion begs Jesus in verse 28 not to torture him. Please, son of God, do not torture me. This word for torture is found at the end of the book of Revelation, where Jesus sends the devil into his place of final judgment. And thus, what happens in this encounter is, in many ways, odd to us, difficult to understand. What's the point of the involvement of these pigs? Legion desires time to perpetuate more destruction He knows that Jesus has come to reclaim this man. That becomes evident to him. And so he needs to resort to something else. But Jesus' desire to recreate this man, let's pause there just for a couple of moments. His desire to recreate this man, along with the story of Jesus calming the sea, show us a fascinating parallel and proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ. Parallel to the way that God creates in Genesis. In Genesis, God is over uh, the face of the waters and he brings order and the world out of these chaotic waters, which is, of course, a parallel to what Jesus does in the calming of the sea. He stands on the boat. He commands the winds and the waves. He makes the chaos of the seas be still. 
And then after God creates order out of the waters, he takes a man and he places him in his garden. And Jesus, after he calms the seas, encounters this man whose humanity has been taken from him. And he restores this man's humanity. And he places him back inside a community. See how Luke is trying to draw parallels between Jesus Christ and the God of the Old Testament to show us the divine nature of Jesus and his divine power. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus coming to earth as God in man to bring new life, to restore what has been lost. He is Lord over every sphere of life. There is nowhere that man can go that is outside of his lordship. Jesus as king fulfills what the Old Testament says about the kingship of the God of Israel. For instance, in Psalm 47, we read this. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. For God is king of all the earth. Sing praises with the psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. This is what Christ does. This is who Christ is. The king of all. The king of the ages. The Lord of lords. But this legion of demons does not consider the extent to which Jesus' lordship goes. So they look at these pigs, and they think that in the pigs, they have found their solution. Pigs are unclean in Israel, completely untouchable, considered as a, a filthy animal. And so since these, this legion of demons knows that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah, they think that in these pigs, they have found their solution, their way out. If Jesus allows them to go into the pigs, then he will not concern themselves, concern himself with them anymore. So Jesus grants them permission to go into the pigs. But what happens next is once again, putting on display and showing us the lordship of Jesus Christ over every sphere of life. Not just over the sea and the chaotic waters, not just over Israel, but indeed over all the earth, over all flesh. Jesus grants this legion of demons permission to go into these pigs. And what happens next is uh, a backfiring of their plan. It's a mysterious story, isn't it? I've read it many times in my life and and always kind of wondered what was going on. And it seems clear that that Luke is, is showing us that this legion of demons wanted to go into these pigs because it was a place, a sphere of life, where Jesus would not be concerned with them. Sure, go into the pigs. Pigs are unclean. They're filthy animals anyways. Your unclean spirits go off into the unclean animals. But really, Jesus involves the pigs in this story to show his lordship even over these pigs. Because they stampede into the lake. And I don't know if you you know much about pigs. I don't really know much about pigs. But I know that they're not stampeding animals. I know that if, if they were thrown into confusion, they would scatter everywhere. They would run every which direction. But it, yet here, they run as one into the lake. They give themselves in service to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ has this intermediary step in this account where he allows the spirits to go into these pigs. And then they go as one into the lake to show the lordship the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. The demons thought they were going to get away, 
but in reality they end up in the same sea over which Christ has just shown himself to be Lord. Luke gives us this story in tandem with the previous story so that we might have certainty that Jesus Christ is Lord over every realm, Lord over every sphere of life. So be certain. Be certain that Jesus Christ is Lord. I wonder if we examine ourselves whether or not we will find that we are living in accord with this truth. Do we live as though Jesus Christ is Lord over every realm, over every sphere of our lives? Perhaps we feel as though there are the swine areas in our life. There's all this stuff that that God wouldn't be concerned with. All this stuff that, that kind of falls outside the interests of Jesus. All these areas of my life. Perhaps uh, it is sin. Perhaps it is sin that we hide from others and act as though God is not concerned uh, with these little sins that are sort of littered throughout my life. But if you are in Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have God's abiding presence always with you. And any kind of sin is offensive to God's presence. presence. As the Apostle Paul says, sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Perhaps swine areas of your life are as simple as thinking that God is not concerned with the minutia of your life. It's not so much purposeful sin, it's just saying, well, God's a big God, and so he's not concerned with all of the smaller areas of my life. If, we, if I may use a rather lame turn of phrase from today's passage, that kind of thinking is hogwash, isn't it? God wants you. God wants all of you. God wants your faithfulness on Monday as much as he does on Sunday. He wants you to understand that in all that you do, you are to work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. He wants you to know that In all that you do, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther famously said, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, that God takes as much joy in the faithfulness of milkmaids as he would in the faithfulness of kings. God, of course, is concerned with your life. Jesus Christ wants all of you. Are we living as though we are certain that Christ is Lord over all of life. We see that these people, these garrisons, have no interest in living in accord with that truth. They have no interest in facing the truth of who Jesus Christ is. They reject him. You've heard the phrase, better the devil that you know than the devil that you don't, right? The garrisons are sort of living uh, with, under the phrase, better the devil that you know than the Jesus that you don't than the freedom that you don't, than the salvation that you don't. This legion of demons had claimed this land where this man was. He was a maniac. He was completely uncivil. He was a menace. He was a problem. But we see that they would rather have that than the freedom, the salvation that Jesus gives them. Why are they so afraid? Perhaps their fear reminds us of the Israelites who could not stand to be near Mount Sinai, so they had Moses go for them. But perhaps if the Israelites would have had more courage to stay closer to the presence of God, perhaps they would not have been so quick to fall into sin. Communing with God is what 
keeps us from sin. The beautiful picture of the Christian life is that more and more we grow to understand how holy God is and how sinful we are apart from Christ and how wondrous it is that God involves us in this wonderful fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit, and He makes us His own. And understanding the majesty, the splendor, the glory of God, that He values you, that He made you His own in Christ. Communing with that God is what keeps you from sin. Their fear of these Gerasenes is therefore ironic. Perhaps they were afraid of their lives changing. Somebody lost out on this deal, didn't they? Somebody lost a bunch of pigs. It was pretty valuable. And perhaps they're thinking, well, if this Jesus really is who he seems to be, perhaps he's going to make all of these claims upon our lives. And we... We kind of like our lives. Sure, there's the, 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 the legion of demons on the outskirts of town. Sure, we're sort of a, a colony of the devil. They, of course, wouldn't have said it that way. But that's really what they are. But we're happy with the way life is. Uh, life is, in a twisted way, it's sort of safe. Of course, reminds us of one of the most famous Christian sermon illustrations from the Chronicles of Narnia, where the children are talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver about Aslan, and talking about the power of Aslan, and they say, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, well, no, he's not safe, but he's good. The same is true for these Gerasenes. Jesus is powerful, he's mighty, he's not safe, but he's the only place where refuge can be found. He's the only place where freedom can be found. But they would rather live a lie. They see all this evidence in front of them. This man who has been restored, this man who has been saved. The end of verse 36, we see that the word there is cured, but really it's the the word for saved. Jesus has saved this man, not just mentally and physically, but he's given him new spiritual life. Look at how Jesus restores order. Look at how Jesus breaks what has been, uh, or restores what has been broken, who fixes up what has been maimed, who rehumanizes this man whose humanity has been ripped from him. And yet they prefer enslavement over freedom. The devil's colony over the embassy of Christ. This is the truth that's confronting us here today. Do we want all of Christ? Because he can claim all of us. That's who Jesus is, Lord of all. To reject him is to live according to a lie, but to understand who he is and what he has done is to be grateful, because only he can repair what has been broken. Only he can fix the problems that we have. Only he can grant salvation. So be grateful. Be grateful that Christ is Lord. Truly, our salvation comes not of ourselves, not of any goodness in us, not of any ability to recognize our need. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Be grateful that Christ is Lord. Even though Jesus complies with their request to leave, It is not as though that he is saying that everything is hopeless, for he plants this man. He keeps him there. This transformed witness becomes a a transformed witness to the grace of God in Jesus Christ, doesn't he? This man begs Jesus to let him go with him. 
Jesus says, no, you stay here. Declare all the things that I have done for you. In a way, this becomes the parable of the sower in action. Jesus is going to leave this man here in this hostile, occupied colony. Leave him there as an, as an embassy of the kingdom of God to declare all that God has done for him and to scatter the seed of the kingdom of God to let the Holy Spirit do what it's going to do to let the sovereign work of God call people unto himself transformed witness reminds us of perhaps what we are transformed witnesses those who uh, love God and love neighbor those who overcome the hostile spiritual forces in this world and in our lives not with evil but as the Apostle Paul says, overcoming evil with good. After the example of Jesus Christ. It's fascinating, isn't it, too, that Jesus says, go and declare all the things that God has done for you. And what does this man do? He goes and declares everything that Jesus does for him. I think Luke has done a marvelous job in these last couple of stories of showing us the divinity of Jesus Christ. And then it ends up here at the end of this second story, this man being charged with, by Jesus of going and telling all the things that God has done for you. And then he goes and tells, uh, tells of everything that Jesus has done for him. He lives as a transformed witness. He lives like Jesus is Lord. And I wonder if we can consider for ourselves today whether or not we are living as if Jesus is Lord. Over every realm, over every sphere, he cares about every corner of sin in our lives. He cares about all the minutiae that we think he doesn't concern himself with. Jesus Christ is Lord. We can be certain that he is Lord. He has given us a grace which is so undeserved. Uh, we must be grateful that he is Lord. He gives us the abiding power of the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, to be in awe of all that he has done for us so that we might live like he is Lord. Live as one who buys not into a lie that you can be self-sufficient, not into a lie that you don't need Jesus Christ. Live as one who knows who Jesus really is. That's what Luke is trying to do in these stories. He's trying to show us who Jesus is really is. The Holy Spirit, as he illumines this scripture to us, will indeed convict us so that we might be certain to know who Jesus really is. Live like we know that he is God in the flesh. Live like we know that he is Lord of all. Amen. Father, we desire that all the world would hear the truth about Jesus Christ. Father, we are grateful that you have created a community of people who are transformed witnesses, who can be certain that Jesus is Lord and, and grateful and then live like it. Father, we ask that you would root these scriptures deep down into our hearts, that we might live being convicted of their truth, and that we might be grateful to go out into the world once again scattered as your people, awaiting the return of our King, and ready to show 
to live in accordance with all you call us to, ready to tell of what you have done for us. We thank you for it. Give us power, courage, and grace to do so. In Christ's name, amen. Let us end together by